This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to the Minefield, the best thereof uh, and the best from what we did in 2022. I know it's now 2023, unambiguously. This episode is in 2023 going to air. Well, Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host as we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life, typically here on RN Summer. Unambiguously. Um, what a wonderful word that we tend not to use. <laughs> yeah, we should use it more. It should feature more in Minefield Bingo. Um, anger is the topic today, Scott. Oh, yes. This was a great one. All of the shows that we featured so far, Emma, Disciplining the Eyes, and now Anger, these have all taken place in intermittent series that we've done over the course of the year. This most recent one was on the moral emotions. It, in many respects, is emblematic of so many things we wanted to do last year. It's a show on an emotion that is pervasive and I think undisciplined. It's given a certain moral inflection, and I think we both argue it doesn't deserve the moral uh, inflection or the moral reputation that it now has. And it's with one of our very, very favorite guests, the novelist, thinker, essayist, playwright, Christos Cholkis. This was a show, Waleed, that was uncommonly rich that, I don't know about you, but for me at least, it rewards multiple listenings. Uh, so anyway. Well, that, that's that's fortuitous because you're about to get multiple listenings. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you enjoy I have actually been thinking about how we describe this show. Are about the minefield or are you talking about... Yeah, 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 the minefield, the minefield. Because I've got nothing better to think about. This is kind of the thing that I think about all the time. Um, one of my favorite philosophers, Iris Murdoch, she, and I, I mean, we, we've discussed this a few times before. I don't want to go into it. But she was famously reticent and even outright opposed to using the adjectives that we normally assign to uh, forms of moral judgment or moral evaluation. She said, you know, we, we use these words as if they had capitals, but they don't. We simply fill them with whatever it is that we want them to mean. Mm. Things like good and evil or justice or right. Because they're different conceptions, these end up being kind of projections of what we want the world to be rather than as real terms of useful evaluation. And that's why she said... You know, we need to reach as deep in our bag of adjectives as we possibly can to try to use language well and in a way that really does shed light. But one of her descriptions of the essence, the heart of the moral life is she said, it's the obligation or the task of seeing another person with love, justice, and pity. You know, I think I love everything about that. Coming to see the world through the lenses of love and justice and pity. Um, I think there's something about that, trying to cast things in that light that ought to guide us, that ought to form kind of like the beacons. As soon as we sort of veer one way a little bit too far, then one of those other principles should should bring us back. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe we can come up with some kind of tag or catchphrase that, that revolves around that. Anyway. Mm. Which actually leads us into the topic for this week's show. Yeah, it kind of does. I actually thought you were about to go on and set up this week's show. Oh, really? Do you want me to? Yeah, I think you should. But but just a really quick observation on what you said. I I think this is one of the interesting oversights, I suppose I would say, in the way that people prosecute their politics now, Hmm. is there is no sense of tempering or restraint or balance or... That, that sort of makes it sound more more generic than I intend. Some kind of sense that claims exist in tension with other claims and moral virtues that sort of undergird the argument that you're pushing are very rarely absolute. Hmm. They exist in all kinds of tensions. And that even moral emotions are very often only partial truths. So they they express something of the truth but they are insufficient. They might be necessary, but but they're insufficient as moral or political guides. And today we're devoting the show to a very particular one of these, and that is anger, Hmm. which is probably the, if you want to call it a moral emotion, the moral emotion of the moment. It's kind of the currency of our politics at the moment, or at least one of the primary currencies. 
And I think what is not done enough, you tend to get two things. One is, well, stop being so angry and we can talk about this. And the other is stop delegitimizing my anger. My anger is righteous and therefore it's all I need. I actually saw this recently uh, on the back cover of a book. I can't remember the book. I can't remember the author. But it was something like, uh, I thought I didn't have much to say on this, but then I realized my anger was all I needed to be qualified to talk about this. Now, that's a paraphrase. but uh, It's a remarkably common sentiment. Yeah, and I remember reading it and being stunned by it. I was like, sorry, what? There's a difference between saying my anger is justified and saying my anger is the only justification I need to publish a book. (laughs) They're actually very different positions, and I'm not sure I can't go along with, with the latter. And yet I think there's a whole school in politics where that's that's orthodoxy now. That's, yeah. that's, that's almost unimpeachable. And, but what's going on there is the idea of understanding that these things have their proper place, but they also have illegitimate places. And we don't ever tease those things out because it actually becomes a clash of asserting one's particular emotional currency in a debate, such as these things can be called debates to the extent they can be. Um, yeah. Sorry, that went a lot longer than I expected. But that, that's what's going through my mind as you were talking. Oh, well, that's, that, that's perfect. I think you've just taken us so far in the direction that we need to go. Because as soon as you say, okay, uh, this is an expression, my anger is all that I need. My anger is, if you like, sufficient content, or it points me in the direction of the capital T truth. Therefore, I just need to follow this particular thread. You can also hear the objection to the objection, can't you? The objection to, so the objection is, okay, anger has its place within limits. Anger can point you towards the truth, but it can also distort your senses. I I mean, I I would like in a moment to sort of delve back into some of what has been said in the past about anger, which I think we've dismissed far too cavalierly. But the, the objection to, okay, anger is not enough. Anger can only take you so far, but then you need, I don't know, what comes next. What cool rationality or persuasive reason or the objection to the objection is, but you're only saying that anger is enough. You're demeaning the value, the quality, the purity of my anger because you exist in a position of privilege where you've never had to be Mm. angry as I have. In other words, anger emerges from an experience Uh, that is then so unjust that what it produces is necessarily uh, crystalline in its moral purity. Um, There's something about anger, in other words, that tells us the truth, and that anger cannot be renounced. It must be maintained until capital J justice is achieved. Mm. Um, I mean, a big part of me wants to say, because I don't think anger... Uh, of the kind that we're going to be discussing is necessarily confected. I don't think anger is put on. But I do think to simply describe anger as if it were an emotion and there wasn't anything then beyond it, I think that also doesn't quite do the whole thing justice. Anger doesn't come out of nowhere. Anger can, of course, be elicited from a state of, from a condition of injustice. This simply oughtn't to be. So, for instance, Aristotle in his Eudemian Ethics, uh, the lesser cousin of the Nicomachean Ethics, he said that one of the purest and hottest forms of anger is the anger over a perceived slight, not of me, but when something that I love is held in such disrepute or in such low regard. In other words, that might be something that I love. That might be someone that I love. That might be a person or a people or a class or a group to which I'm devoted. And to hear others demean them and to smear them, besmirch them, treat them with contempt and disdain. That might, be, be, that might elicit in me a kind of vicarious anger. This sort of thing oughtn't to exist in the world. Can't you see the value of that thing that you have just demeaned? But Aristotle also said, and here's where I think he was just so profoundly wrong, that what anger usually uh, emerges from or stems from is when I myself have been slighted or demeaned by someone who had no business, who has no standing to slight or demean me. In other words, anger emerges from humiliation 
anger emerges from somebody else putting me down or not recognizing my my worth. And and there you would have to say, correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, Walid, but there you'd have to say that the anger that emerges from that kind of downgrading is or the experience of being degraded, that's an anger that is infused, that's infected, not just with with a longing for one's honor, but it's also infected with egotism. And the only way that that egotism can then assert itself or recover its standing is by means of humiliating somebody else. In other words, through something like vengeance. And this is where... There's a reason why I think every major religious tradition has held out tremendous moral warnings over anger and its pretentiousness, over the preparedness of anger to try to make the world after its image or the inability of anger to control itself at moments where, where, where limits are in fact required or the dignity, the well-being of another person is to be honored. I, I think in our obsession with just anger or righteous anger mm. or, or anger for many people as the sine qua non, the ultimate expression of moral seriousness, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. If yeah. you're not angry, it's because you're privileged or disengaged or you just or, want to go back to Or morally deficient. Yeah. Or morally deficient. Yeah. This is where I think we've swept the abuses, the corruptions of anger, the warnings about it, far too easily to the side. We've become so obsessed with one particular form of anger that we failed to recognize, I think, the inherent dangers as such that attend to any expression of, of anger uh, in a time like ours. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the almost uniform warnings about this across religious traditions. Mm. Um, as I was thinking about, or as you were talking about this, I was recalling, uh, so I'm a Muslim, obviously I'm most familiar with the Islamic tradition and there's just such a vast literature on it, you know, mm. um, a lot of which hangs off statements of the prophet Muhammad about anger that are just really emphatic. They were the most famous of which is where a, a man comes to him and says, advice, like, give me some advice. And all the prophet says to him is, la taghdab, which is do not be angry, do not become angry. Mm. Mm. And then the man repeats his request and the prophet says the same thing again, la taghdab, over. And so when you have a, uh, uh, there's a real indication there that that's the advice, like, give me advice generally, that's what I'm giving you. And then you ask again, I'll give you the same advice. That's a sign of the seriousness of which this is understood, at least by the, the prophet. Now, in the context of a discussion that wants to reduce all stances against anger as mere privilege, I think it's really fascinating because the, <laughs> this is not coming from privileged people. Mm -hmm. Those warnings... I mean, I get there will be a critique about, yeah, but the church became privileged and so then it was had an interest in... Yeah, but go to the root, to these, the people, so in the case of the, of the Prophet Muhammad, if you want to dismiss his claims to prophethood and just see him as like some kind of quasi-political character or whatever, he, he was the bottom of the power pile. His community was at the bottom of the power pile in his society for a very long time. Um, and yet there was still an understanding that that's really, really important. And so the, the, the scholastic discourse, which I'm sure is not markedly different in the Islamic tradition to what it is in various other religious and even non-religious philosophical traditions about it. I think the point you make about ego is really central to it. Right? Mm. Um, anger is very often a, an expression of ego, not an expression of justice. And the ability to disentangle those two things is very often illusory. Yeah. It's extremely easy to recast your egotistical anger as righteous or justice-based anger. And so the litmus test that I've you know, heard some um, theologians talk about is you should never be angry on your own behalf. The minute you're angry on your own behalf, you're in dangerous territory. That's, mm. that's now something completely different. It should only really be on behalf of others. The question then becomes, okay, so what anger is legitimate and what anger is not? 
because there is an understanding, and there are prophetic statements in the Islamic tradition to back this up, there is an understanding that anger itself is not the problem. Like you, having anger is fine and natural, and it's a human thing. And it is actually essential in responding to injustice. It's just that it's not your guide. So the way in which this scholarly discussion shakes out tends to be, and I'm interested in what you know of other traditions to contrast this or, or reinforce it, um, is that what anger is doing is sending you a signal of some kind of moral concern. Mm, that's right. But what you do with that signal must always then be subject to other higher virtues. That is, in the case of the Islamic tradition, divine guidance. So it needs to be guided by something that is higher than just the presence of anger. And anger then becomes insufficient. It, it's fine as an alert system. It is not fine as a, a roadmap for action. And the conduct that it wants to ask of you is something that should be regarded with suspicion. You yeah. need to have recourse to a much broader, more sophisticated range of imperatives and virtues than than mere anger. And I think this is kind of an elegant sort of a discussion because what it's doing is acknowledging the important role that anger plays while at the same time observing limits, imposing restraint and understanding that whatever the response to that anger should be, it can never simply be self-gratifying. It can never be done if you want to do it in moral terms. It can never be done in a way that just makes you feel better that is really beside the point of the the imperative. That's beside the point of what anger should be asking you to, to do. Um, mm. I don't know how universal you think that that sort of description is. Uh, shockingly universal. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, and in fact, the difference isn't peculiar place, peculiar uh, geography, peculiar cultures. The difference is time, ours versus another. Um, I find it, I, I find it staggering. Can I, let me just pick up. Uh, I love everything that you just said, Willie, I do, which just makes slogans of mobilization like maintain the rage. <sighs> it's, it strikes me dumb. It really does. Let me just pick up two things, which I think continue along the lines that you've just laid out. Uh, I've always found it fascinating that uh, etymologically, uh, in terms of Hebrew etymology, ancient here I'm talking about, the term anger is related to nose or face. And there's this mm, profound pride, notion. Ego, yeah. yeah, but oh, ego. I think it's more ego. And what it is, and you find this, you find this remarkably consistently, not just in sort of ancient Hebrew right through to rabbinic texts, but also into Greek and Roman literature, there is something about anger that involves the imposition of the face onto the world. In other words, there is a making of the world after one's image in the name of the search for vengeance, capital J, justice. Um, so there's something about the imposition of the face. And if you think about it, all that anger can be met with is acquiescence. I mean, there can be countervailing anger. Yeah, reciprocal anger. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. But the only way that anger can be, what, extinguished or satisfied is by means of acquiescence, by means of the world coming to look like what that face demands. But I also find just really instructive here someone like Seneca, who wrote two of the greatest ancient treatises uh, on both anger and on clemency or mercy. And it's so fascinating to me because one of the things that Seneca held out is that anger is not simply an emotion, but it's also a decision. He said that anger, of course, wells up, but anger is allowed to run its course when the will wants it to run its course. In other words, when you have a certain disposition or you have a certain prejudice uh, and anger wells up, you end up giving it a long, long, long leash because you want that anger to lead you where the ego wants to go. 
which is why he says for every emotion, there needs to be what he calls a preparation for the emotion, which means a certain disposition, a certain block where one says, yes, this wells up, but this is how far I will let it go, and this is the point at which my life, my disposition, my personal preparation allows it to go no further. One of his tremendous observations, this is Seneca, is that the motives of anger aren't just counterproductive, they're base. The motives, the underlying desires for anger aren't just counterproductive, they're base. They, they give the ego the ability to lead a certain base direction um, that's not guarded in, it's not hemmed in by the preparations of the virtues. Um, there aren't many people, I think, that would, that would grant that today. Um, I'm not even sure as I such. can agree with I that. Know. As a, as a, I think it's often true. I think it, I think it's often true as well. But but for Seneca, what the what the litmus test was is to what extent is anger then compatible with clemency? Mm. So the point at which vengeance is renounced, the desire to make the world after one's own image is renounced the desire, the preparedness, the willingness to beat someone else into a position of subservience or acquiescence or obeisance is announced. And instead, something about the dignity, the well-being, um, the other person viewed through the lenses of justice, love, and pity. To what extent does that then mean that anger is then curtailed, is hemmed in? Um, I think there's, there's something about that that really has a lot going for it. Let me just say one final thing and then I'm pretty keen to get to our guest. There's also remarkable unanimity in religious and philosophical traditions that anger blinds us. Mm. So yes, it can be a signal that something isn't right with the world, but it can also blind us to the beauty of the world. Uh, because anger most often expresses itself in the desire to shape the world after one's image, it can blind us to the beauty of the world as it in fact is. It can blind us to the imperative of staying faithful to the world. Um, and I just find it, you know, I, I mean, I, I guess I originally learned this through Martha Nussbaum and some remarkable early writings that she did about the foundations of the justice system in ancient Athens. And even the way that's envisioned through Aeschylus's uh, Oresteia, that the Furies the agents of vengeance, aren't just caged, but they're transformed through the invention of impersonal justice. Um, that there's something about anger which isn't just an outlet, it's also a burden. It has, to be, it has to be satisfied. And then it gives rise to its own forms of retaliation, its own forms of vengeance in kind. But I think, Willie, the writing that I've seen it most beautifully transformed in, the kind of the longing for anger, the, the, the lust for it, or the lust for retribution. Uh, have you, I'm not sure if you've come across Helen Garner's court writings, her writings of experiences of attending court, mm. seeing loathsome individuals who are worthy of the full weight of capital J justice and yet treated with a kind of tenderness with a degree of pity, with a kind of dignity that can't help but transform the way that you see them. I think in so many ways, anger leads us away from the ability to recognize the dignity in people, the beauty in the world. And that's one of the reasons why the greatest moral philosophers who I think, the most perceptive theologians, have seen in anger precisely because it enrages the face Anger is something that clouds the vision. It prevents us from seeing what is in fact there. It prevents us from acknowledging the beauty of the world. Mm. Uh, so much I want to pick up on that, but I'm looking at the time. I'm looking at what I think is Sinead's face, and despite our warnings against anger, <laughs> I suspect she's not taking them. Um, well, we'll get to the guest, and I'll see if I can weave my thoughts through that subsequent discussion. You're listening to The Minefield on ABC RN. Well, Ed Ali's my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Uh, 
our guest is one of our dearest friends, a true friend of this show, someone uh, holding the highest estimation. I can't think of anybody I'd love to discuss this topic with more than Christos Cholkis. He's, of course, one of Australia's finest and most accomplished novelists. He's a fiction writer and essayist, a playwright of rare subtlety and distinction. You've all read his books, The Slat Barracuda, Damascus. But it's his most recent book, Christos, I don't know how you're describing it. It's called Seven and a Half. I absolutely, I, I loved it irrationally. But you're, what is it? You're very is generous, it, Scott. Is it autofiction? Is it a novella? Is it an essay? Whatever it is, it contains some of the most moving passages about anger, its need, its moral demand, and the possibility of, of its renunciation that I've ever read, hence you're here with us today. Thanks so much for coming back on the show, Christos. Absolute pleasure. And I've, I've loved listening into that conversation. Uh, it's it's the, the question of anger, the question of rage. And I, I think there is a, something I'd like to pose there. I mean, anger is, we, we all experience anger and we do. You know, I understand the, the notion of the righteous anger, but it's rage that has really concerned me over the last period. Can you explain um, that distinction? The uh, yeah well you know you were talking about the furies um, in the ancient tradition and it is a, an annihilation when mm. the anger is so immense that the um, it is about the total destruction of the other person and I listening into the conversation and thinking about the topic because I knew we were going to discuss it this week I've been thinking back to the points in my life where I am most shamed of my behavior, and it's when, it's when I have been acting out of rage. Now, the, and, and the stimulus can be, I'm thinking whether we're talking about a relationship, a love relationship, a marriage, whether we're talking about a parent and a child. And I was thinking in particular of something shameful I did uh, in striking out verbally to my father, that the, the rage made the other person disappear. Um, mm. I felt justified at the time, and I used that justification as a way of um, unleashing that, that fury. Uh, so I think we can all look back into our own personal experiences and understand that there is actually an issue to do with anger that, that requires of us a stepping back. Um, and, and sorry, just because so much is flying in my head from, from your discussion, the other thing I wanted why it is so present in all our lives at the moment is that within my own circles at the moment, within my family, within my friendship group, and I would imagine it's the same with you guys, there are people who are not talking to each other and are furious at each other from other positions, whether it's about uh, freedom here in Melbourne and um, the the support or non-support of the uh, what happened over the pandemic, they are furious at each other, and e- each of them equally believes that they are justified. Yeah. That their fury, their anger, is righteous. That it is politi- politically just. They would use they would from exact opposite sides. They would use the same language um, yeah. and the same emotional language to to justify their behaviour. And just really quickly, yes, if you're not angry. You're not listening. I understand and am sympathetic up to a point with what that expresses. But, Scott, when you began this discussion with um, uh, talking about Murdoch and love, justice Mm. and pity, I would – what formed my politics? Yes, it was anger uh, about injustice, personal and uh, what I observed, but – there was not only anger. There was actually love, justice, and and pity. Uh, that moment, as a really young, young, I was a, an adolescent, reading about and, and seeing, hearing Muhammad Ali, starting getting in, um, interested and in reading and observing and thinking about the civil rights movements in in the U.S. That wasn't my anger, you know. But I, there was an, a sense of the importance of justice, the importance of love, the importance of um, empathy that was as important to um, to forming my politics as anger. And it feels like at the cont- in the contemporary moment we've forgotten that. Hmm. Scott, this is an invitation to talk about the US civil rights movement. Do you want to talk? Oh, <laughs> goodness. Let me just say one thing, Christos, and I'm, I'm really eager to hear the two of you speak. I'm just aware that I've probably said way too much already. Look, I... Um, 
the great inheritor, it seems to me, of this moral, philosophical, uh, and religious tradition that I've been referring to that really does, I mean, unequivocally, categorically condemn anger is Martin Luther King Jr., uh, for whom anger at one's enemies, even in a righteous cause, is absolutely prescribed. The reason being that one cannot imagine a future, much less a common world, with one's enemies if you are furious at them. And if you are furious at them, you cannot love them. Now, you you can be bewildered by their blindness, by their prejudice, by their stupidity, by their egotism. But this is why Martin Luther King Jr. tended to refer to something more like blue anger, anger that has tears, anger that is maybe the expression of a kind of exhaustion. My God, are we really doing this again? Do we really have to have this conversation again? And I think there's something about that. I mean, uh, Seneca wouldn't have liked the term pity. He hated the term pity. But maybe if you want to bring anger together with clemency, you know, the kind of the desperate, can't you see the silliness, the contemptuousness, the ridiculousness, the blindness, the soul blindness that hold you in its grasp. I think there's something about that plea, about that appeal that really is an invitation, isn't it? Uh, look, and I think that that for me, that is how I would want to work to that's how I want to live my life. I don't I, I fail again and again, but that's how I want to live my life. I, I, I understand the weariness that some people experience, right? Where they feel, you know, I've said this before, I've done you know, that there is a point where you feel like the the other, the person next to you is not listening, that they are they are not learning anything of of justice. And I understand what how anger can ferment and just become rage in that experience. But I do think for myself, the point of learning to walk, take a step back, to walk, even if it does mean a, a walking away from the situation, that's just been a guide, has guided my life. How you translate that into politics, I get it. It's really, really difficult. But I think that's why I use the, um, the example of within my own family, having people who are at loggerheads at the moment, I am scared at seeing the level of hatred and contempt they are now expressing at one another. And so all I can counsel to them is step step away, just for a moment, step away. And the only language I can use, Waleed and Scott, and I find this... uh, this is difficult because, you know, I, I guess it is a religious language. Um, I I talk about my sense of what I've learned through prayer and what I have learned through uh, the meditation on religious texts and spiritual texts as a way of being able to acknowledge and not be dominated by anger. And I think one one of the people I'm talking about said to me, but I'm not religious. I don't have that. And I actually didn't know what it can be replaced with. And I, I'd like to ask both of you, what what should I answer to that person? I think you've come to the wrong place, Christopher. <laughs> <laughs> it, I, I think it actually says something about why this has become such a difficult uh, moment a contemporary moment in our politics, but which larger than our politics. It's in our, in, in our communion with one another. Do you know why I think it's very hard to replace that with a religious basis? And I'm actually not, I think we've ever discussed this, Christos, as to how religious exactly you are. I know you've got a complicated relationship with um, your religious upbringing and so on. But I, I think one of the reasons it's difficult to replace a religious paradigm for this is part of the ability to put anger in its proper place is an understanding that there is a greater being. Yes. So, like, there's this sense, and Scott, you can tell me how universal this is as well, but that if, if you believe in the existence of a god or gods, then the universe is in safe hands. 
And if there are things that are about it that you don't like, then there is a reason for that. And so part of the not getting angry bit, I think, is an understanding that, well, what, who exactly and what exactly are you raging against? And that there are bigger things that are things of ultimate concern. None of that, by the way, obviates the need to um, fight injustice. In fact, that becomes a, an important command for you to undertake. And I think every religious tradition probably has yes, that. Yes, true. But there is a difference in fighting injustice where the only thing that matters is the outcome. And fighting injustice is some kind of obligation whereby you understand that you are ultimately not in control and not accountable for the outcome. You are only accountable for your efforts. And, I, and once you strip away that, or even as I say this out loud, I think this must sound so alien to most people. Right? <laughs> but once you strip away the, the realm, like that, that's a whole divine layer from things, I'm not sure where you end up because you, you, you can't really find any tranquility in, in that set of ideas. You just can't. All that's really left is the outcome, isn't it? Um, I'm sure there'd be people who are irreligious who would say, no, it's not like that, blah, blah, blah. And I'm certainly open to, to what their perspectives are on it. But I think that's the reason it's so difficult to replace is that it has a mechanism within it that is, that is unique, I suppose. I'm not running away from the, from the question at all. Well, I would like, I mean, one day we will have the discussion about, uh, my, my faith, uh, which is agnostic in the just into the short answer, but the short sure. answer is not enough. Uh, to say that maybe one of the concerns, and maybe one one way to approach uh, the overcome, well, is to to say that. So here, and we can we can think of numerous examples at the moment when one person believes something as vehemently as the other person, even though they come from opposed positions, right? Yeah, and yeah. they will use the language of, of, of justice and right to to claim that. Then then I think back to my life and what has been the important way of being able – how did I learn to argue? How did I learn to take that deep breath and step back and go, I have to listen to this other person? And partly it was the influence of family for me that I actually grew up in a family where yeah. that argument was possible. Partly it was, in fact, centrally, it was uh, a couple of incredible teachers at high school who taught who taught me the philosophers that, we, uh, you know, you've been talking about in the first half hour. And that, what concerns me at the moment is that in, that it feels like teachers are, when I talk to, to friends who are teachers, they want to justify their anger. When I talk to friends who are journalists, they want to be angry. Yeah. And I feel like, I actually feel like that to me is a real matter of concern and in the be, world at the moment. Yeah. I don't want, I, I understand that anger can galvanize a journalist. I can understand that anger can galvanize a teacher. But I am really suspicious of the pedagogical effects of that anger has in the classroom. I'm really, really concerned of what the civil effects of that kind of journalism has in our culture. And the, and the epistemological claims that it can make. I mean, yeah. the, the idea that anger is evidence of truth just of itself. The, the point that you make that's really interesting there is once you start to relativise this, right? So this is, this is why I'm a little suspicious of claims of anger simply being, or dismissal of anger simply being um, an embodiment of privilege, is even though I think there is some truth to that, I'm a bit I'm suspicious of that as a meaning, as a sufficient claim, because everybody's angry, and everybody yes. who's angry, well, just about everybody who's angry, claims to be lacking that privilege, even as they regard the other side as being privileged. So. Um, to pick a hackneyed example, the Trump movement, a lot of anger. What is the language of that anger? The anger is about cultural global elites um, in the form of Hollywood or pop stars or whatever who run this sort of cosmopolitan 
equality line. That is to say, these are the people who enjoy all of the cultural and perhaps even economic privilege in our society, right? Who are we? We are the working class. We are the people who are sidelined from this. Our views are not welcome in polite company. In other words, we lack privilege. That's, they wouldn't use that word necessarily, but that's the way they would express themselves. And you could probably, if you were minded to support their claim, come up with like empirical explanations of that. Who gets attracted to those sorts of movement? Lower socioeconomic people very often do. The, you know, white power movements, for example, um, which is not the same thing as the Trump thing, but, you know, the white power movements tend to flourish after economic crises among people who have been on the receiving end or the, the lower end of that. You could make that argument, right? But then the flip side, the anti-Trump argument, is an argument of privilege. Who are these people? White men, uh, white, straight white men who enjoy all the embodied privilege of um, yep. cultural assumptions. Both are making privilege or anti-privilege arguments here. It, there, there, there seems to be no way of adjudicating upon them in anything that could have a pretense to objectivity. Maybe then the, it, it is then thinking thinking through the that question of rage uh, and the that question of ego that that came that came into the discussion when do we know when do we stop and go uh, now we are frightened and it's at those moments of violence right yeah uh, that and I, I remember actually I because I've been listening to you guys so long, I can't even remember if we were. I was on the show when we were discussing, kind of the, the notion of burning down the house, right? Yeah. Mm. That, that was a few years ago. Cancel culture, uh, burn it down, burn it down. Liberalism has failed, you know. Um, and then, and that I, I'm not on social media, but a lot of my friends are, and that seemed to be a thing they were talking about. It was in the air, and then uh, capital. Uh, the riots in the Capitol Hill happened in the US yeah. after the, the election and that stopped mm. because people suddenly realised the violence wasn't in their terms justified. The question of violence and rage and anger for me, and I think these are where the great philosophers and I, where I actually think the, 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 the spiritual teachings uh, have have understood this for a very very long time. It's in that connection mm. between the violence that you do in rage, because that is part of the dehumanising of the other and of oneself. That's so, the other and of one's yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, my my sorry. Uh, just there's so many notes I had on a scrap of paper when you were talking. That was one thing I've been really conscious of, and it does come out in my writing. That to me, ang- um, fury, or if you like. Anger and shame are so bound together mm. because of the experiences to do with shame around sexuality and and mm. the body. So I've been really conscious for decades now of how what can be unleashed from that mm. that combination can get you can annihilate another person if you yeah. don't find a way of uh, of naming that uh, mastering that. Uh, finding and even though I, I've just said I'm agnostic. It's actually it's been for me. It has been through reading the Bible, reading the Quran, reading um, spiritual texts from across faith traditions, that I have found ways to overcome that nexus of shame and anger well, and violence. There's an amazing interview show to be done with you, um, sort yeah. of. Enough rope style on <laughs> 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 all of this. Um, I'm conscious of the fact that Scott has had no chance to say anything, Sorry, so Scott, I'll yeah. let him just take the rest of the show, but I have to do the reset in the meantime. Uh, that voice belongs to Christus Cholkos, by the way. Who Do I need to say who he is? I mean, you, you know every, and love everything he's done, author, essayist, playwright, etc. Um, well, Ed Ali's my name. Scott Some Stevens. things you may not love. Well, I suppose <laughs> these things are in the eye of the beholder to some extent, aren't they? Um, Scott Stevens has been my hitherto silent co-host. This has been wonderful. Look, I'm... This is so strange because all three of us have peculiar relationships to faith traditions. I'm really reticent to peg the renunciation of anger to handing things over 
to the one who guarantees, say, the arc of history. I mean, that, that I should be clear. That's, that's not what it. I mean. Well, no, 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 no. I'm not attributing that to either of you. It is striking to me, however, that in especially uh, ancient Jewish writings, anger is most often associated with presumptuousness, uh, a usurpation of the human, of control of the world. I think there's something in that that's just about right. Um, Can I just say, I think that's the same thing. Yeah, I think so. I know. And that, that's where I'm expressing my reticence about one thing and then expressing my uh, acceptance of, of another. Let me just say this. Uh, I mean, Crystal, seven and a half moved me tremendously. Uh, even after the third reading, I found myself weeping at, at various passages. And, and it filled me with an ungodly craving for white bean chili, <laughs> garlic uh, over toasted bread. Um, the thing that kept running through my mind, though, as I was reading it, was a remark of Anton Chekhov's at his very lowest in his diaries, where he said, Hitherto, I renounce every ideology, every ism, every doctrine of the right and left, every claim of providence or of justice, and I hereto devote myself to the sanctity and beauty of the human body and to the preciousness of the world. And I guess we, we give ourselves over to anger, it seems to me, at precisely that moment where we are most prepared to lose faith in the world, to close our eyes to the beauty of the world, those remnants, those reminders that tell us that there is something here that speaks of a preciousness and of a commonality that needs to be tended to with the greatest care. And at those moments where we are most inattentive to the sacredness, the preciousness, the fragility of the human body, whether our own or that of another person. And, you know, I, I, again and again, you find these impositions of humility on the part of great moral philosophers and theologians who say, you, don't you realize all of the things that you would need to know in order to carry out divine vengeance accurately on another human being? Don't you know how much of that person you would have to have grasped yeah. and explained and satisfied yourself in order to pronounce judgment and carry out vengeance justly? And I guess I, I, I'm really, I, I'm very, very reticent in the language of faith or outside of it, ever talking about the capital A arc of history or providence or relying on providence or divine justice. But it seems to me that there is a kind of devotion to the imminence of my neighbor the preciousness of the human body and a residual faith in, in the beauty of the world. And that, that Christos was just reinforced to me almost every page in seven and a half that meant uh, that the, the great challenge in the moral life is does one have the courage because of one's devotion to the beauty of the world and one's love of the frailty, the foibles, the stupidity of another human being to in fact renounce anger. That was, I mean, Scott, that was what uh, I was, that's what I was working towards in that book. And you asked what kind of book it is. It's, it's a, a fictional essay. I'm going to mm. describe it at that because I didn't even know what autofiction was when I began writing it. Uh, but that, that, you know, I've talked to you both on this show and outside the show that for me, you know, the, one of the great moral lessons of my life, because I, I grew up a communist. I grew up with a particular faith in an ism, in an ideology. And then when I was a young man, I traveled through Eastern Europe as it was unshackling from communism. That's the term I use. And I realized I was wrong. You know, I was angry. I believed in justice. I still, uh, all those things, but I was wrong. And I was blind to a great inhumanity or great inhumanities uh, around. So I can't do that anymore. You use that Chekhov quote is astounding, and that notion of communality, I think, has it seems to have just been sucked out of all politics. And and I'm not talking about I'm talking about left and right, but all around it as well. 
the notion of communality seems to no longer be part of the way we talk in in us in the world of politics and in the world of uh, the the civic square and i'm really concerned about that and i think those some of these questions about anger that we are trying to grapple with today um, that, that they make sense of why that why that word has disappeared we why do we feel justified in erasing some the other the other person so you know what's interesting about that is i think when you if you were to ask people that you think are doing that that question i think their answer would always come down to because they're trying to erase me hmm. and both interlocutors would passionately believe the other one started it. Seems to be like every war in history, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so can, can you break the circuit like that? I mean, at some point that requires somebody to say, even if I'm being erased, I refuse to do the same. And that's a very hard call to make. And I can imagine why a lot of people would go so far as to say, it's not even a call you should make. As a matter of political strategies. Sorry to interrupt, Waleed, but that is why you need you need people, you need the teachers, you need the um, the spiritual leaders, you need uh, journalists, you need to be able to claim the importance of of being able to not go to war. If I'm, I'm trying to find the right words, the right language for it, and and that that to me of all that that. That, for me, Christos Cholkos at the moment, is what concerns me most. You know, uh, when I when I read the newspapers and it's journalists yelling at each other, you know, when uh, when the, the question of how we teach these kinds of ethics to my nieces and nephews, how, how is it done, doesn't seem to be part of what people want to talk about. That really, that is, is my concern. And I think I've, uh, you know, I've articulated that to you on previous occasions. I think that's where the great failure is at the moment from people like us for not doing it better or not, you know, or, or giving up on that responsibility. Yeah, not caring at all about it. Yeah. It makes me wonder if the question is, do we need to be prepared to fail nobly in achieving whatever our political end is? I suspect most people would say, no, that's exactly how status quo gets maintained. Um, at least people who are progressive-minded. Yeah, but we've haven't we seen enough of history to know that the uh, you know that question of the uh, end justifying the means. That, yes, that, what I find fascinating about that whole objection is that no one really wants to apply it to their own ends. No, that's true. <laughs> yeah. uh, because it's like, yeah, that's a good rule, but come on, I'm right here, you know, <laughs> and so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Let's put a little asterisk. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Does not apply to me. Christos, uh, it's always great to have you on the show. Thank you so much it's for sparing great, the time. Great to be the, uh, with you too. Thank you so much. Let's continue this because, you know, it's, it's, uh, I just, I, uh, every time I'm on the show with you, I just want to go out for five hours and keep talking. Scott, I hope you felt you said enough. I know it was a tough one for you today to find space within there. I apologise <laughs> no, for hogging no, the limelight. Loved it. Christos Chalkas, author, essayist, playwright, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, which is now at an end. I will see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.